you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. We keep on chugging through the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 20. To begin today, I want to start with one of the first things kids learn to say. It's that great and terrible phrase, It's not fair. I have six kids going on seven, and I've had many years to hear this said many times from their lips. It's not fair. If I don't give them enough slices of pizza, it's not fair. If I give them too many vegetables, it's not fair. If grandma and grandpa want to take out three kids, because that's All that can fit in their vehicle at one time. And then another day they're going to take out another three kids. Well, that's not fair. If the older kids get to stay up late to watch a movie and the younger kids get to eat dessert to compensate for that. Everybody says it's not fair. It's just not fair. And the amazing thing really is that kids know this instinctively. You don't have to teach kids this, right? Like no parent has to teach their five-year-old, you know, hey, buddy, come here, come here. have you, you see that kid's toys over there? They're really cool. In fact, they're much cooler than your toys. So I want you to repeat after me. It's not fair. Just go ahead and say that. It, like, no parent has to teach their kids to say that. They just know this phrase. Now, as we become adults, most of us learn to control those outbursts. We don't Most of us don't say that as often, say that as much, but we still feel it inside. Perceived inequalities, our job's not fair, our pay isn't fair, the taxes aren't fair, you're driving somewhere in a hurry, you're running late, the light turns red when nobody is at the intersection and you just have to sit there. It's not fair! We all feel it. It's not fair. Now, of course, there are things in life, real injustices, that are not fair, and we're not trying to minimize those at all. Some things are unfair, and when things are unjust, we need to seek justice. But I'm talking about a way of looking at life where we are sizing things up. We are measuring, we are calculating, we are comparing to others. A way of looking at life where we feel like we are owed things. This is the way we can look at life sometimes, but there's another way of looking at life. Instead of looking at life through a lens of fairness, there's a way of looking at life through glasses of grace. There's a way of looking at life where you're not sizing things up, you're not calculating, you're not comparing, you're not feeling like you owed something. Instead, glasses of grace see that we're always doing better than we deserve. This is how our friend C.J. Mahaney often answers people when they say, how are you doing, or how's it going? He says, well, better than I deserve. It's a way of looking at life with glasses of grace. So that the hard days, which we all have, we work to believe that they are for our good. When other people are succeeding, we smile. When they are blessed, we rejoice. Instead of experiencing life as a series of disappointments, one after the other, where you don't get what you want, instead you learn to experience all of life as gift. 
And you look around and all you see is grace. Whatever good is in your life is grace. Whatever is good in somebody else's life is grace. We are doing better than we deserve. Recently, I had to go to the eye doctor. Because looking at things far away are a little blurrier than they used to be for me. So I got a prescription. I brought home my glasses last night. Showed them to my kids. Put them on. And everyone except for one went, Oh! It was like, not encouraging. I only have to wear the glasses occasionally, though, when I need them. My wife, Jenny, on the other hand, is practically blind without her glasses or her contacts. For her, without them, life is just a giant blur. Blur, a blum, blur, a blobby blur. And so every morning, first thing Jenny has to do is she has to put her glasses on so that she can see. And whether you realize it or not, prescription glasses aside, we're all putting on glasses every morning. For how we're going to see life that day. And we're going to either see it through a lens of fairness. Where we're often feeling like we're last. But we ought to be first. Or we're going to put on glasses of grace. Where we really feel like often we're in first. And we know we should be in last. This all has to do with our passage today. Where our sermon title is Grace Isn't Fair. Grace Isn't isn't fair. I want you to look at our text with me. This is a passage where Jesus teaches us about his kingdom, what it's like, that it is a kingdom of sovereign and surprising grace. So we're looking at Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. I invite you to follow along. This is what Holy Scripture says. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went, going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour. He did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose 
to give to this last worker as I give to you? Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? And so, the last will be first, and the first last. This is the word of God. You join me in prayer. Father, you are full of love for us, and your word is full of power. And so we ask, according according to your great love for us, that you would bring your word in power today. Lord, bring it in power to show us your grace, and bring it in power to save us from sin. Bring it in power to change us and make us more like Christ. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, last week, Merrick did a great job teaching us about the rich young ruler. And we want to see the connection between that passage and ours today. The rich young ruler was a man who wanted to follow Jesus. He wanted eternal life. And so Jesus told him, to do this, to do so, you must give up the one thing that will keep you fully committed from me. If you want to be my follower, if you want to be my disciple, you have to give up the one thing that will keep you from wholeheartedly following after me, and that is your wealth. To which the man, sadly, walked away. He could not treasure Jesus more than he treasured his treasure. Now, if you'll look with me at the end of chapter 19, beginning in verse 27, right after this interaction with the rich young ruler, Peter interacts with Jesus, and he says this, verse 27, Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for My name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. So Peter says to Jesus, Jesus, we've left, your disciples have left everything to follow you. And that was no exaggeration. They had left jobs and family and homes. They were traveling around with Jesus. And they were now being hated by authorities, soon to be persecuted by them. So Peter's looking for some assurance here from Jesus that it's all worth it. And Jesus is quick to respond. He says, listen, it's going to be worth it. This is going to be worth it for you. When I rule, when I reign, when I have a throne, you are going to sit on thrones with me and you are going to reign with me. And Jesus' assurance is not just for Peter and the, the first disciples, it's for all of us. He says, and everyone. So this is us, brothers and sisters. Everyone who follows or who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. From all this, we learn a couple of important things. First, that Jesus' disciples are those who pay the price to follow him. Jesus' disciples are those who pay the price to follow. It's not a decision to get out of hell. 
That's what I used to think being a Christian was really about. You know, do you want hell or do you want heaven? I'll take heaven. I'll go with Jesus if that's what if I'll take heaven if that's what it is. But Jesus is not just a get out of hell free card. Being a Christian means following Jesus. You will follow him into eternal life. You will inherit with him eternal life. But being a Christian means following Jesus. It means giving up what you cannot keep to gain what you cannot lose. It's a decision then to pay the price of following Jesus, paying the co- you know, counting the cost, and then paying it to follow him. Because he's worth it. Because you've determined that. And when we decide to follow Jesus, there are habits we need to stop. And there are habits we need to start. There are places we have to stop going, and there are places we need to start going to. There are relationships that need to end, and there are relationships that are going to need to begin. And all of this is going to cost us something. And Jesus is saying to us, but it's worth it. There's a rich reward for you if you do it. Jesus promises that for everything we give up, for everything we believe behind, for his namesake, we will receive a hundredfold. And inherit eternal life. So the great thing, the great reward for following Jesus, it's eternal life, it's salvation, it's forever with him, but it's also gaining a hundredfold for everything we give up. So you put on the scale everything you give up for Jesus, anything you give up for Jesus, and he's going to give you a hundredfold in return. And that's not a literal, I don't think that's a literal hundred. Like, you know, if if your, if your sister doesn't believe in Jesus and, and you, there's a sense you give up the relationship... You know, to follow Jesus, it doesn't mean you know you're going to get a hundred sisters back, right? Like it's not a literal thing. Jesus is saying, whatever you give up, I'm going to more than abundantly make up for. Like more than you can calculate, it's going to be a hundred times better. Whatever our faith costs us, whatever it costs us to follow Jesus, Jesus assures us it's worth it. There is a reward, but. Knowing this, being comforted by this, by being assured by this, this should bully our spirits, this should should lift us up. And yet, knowing this puts us in a bit of a precarious place. Because there's a mistake we can make here. There's a dangerous mistake we can make here, knowing this. And Jesus begins to address that mistake. He begins to to protect us in verse 30. Because he says, but, but, many who are... There's a rich reward coming. Do you feel, you feel the correction Jesus brings? There's a rich reward coming. A hundredfold eternal life. But many who are first will be last. And the last first. So the mistake Jesus is beginning to correct here. The mistake we can make. Is to begin to assume God owes us something. That the more we give up for God. The more that we give up for Jesus. The more he's entitled to give us something. That the more we do for Jesus' sake, the more we leave for Jesus' sake, then the more he'll do for us. And so beginning in verse 30, Jesus is teaching us, wait, that's not how the kingdom works. That's not how this kingdom works. You will be rewarded. You will get a hundredfold back. But contrary to your expectations, many who are first will be last and the last first. And then notice our passage today, you probably already made this connection, it concludes with the same phrase in the reverse order, chapter 20, verse 16. So, in conclusion, Jesus is saying, the last will be first, and the first last. So this phrase, which Jesus repeats, is really the key to the the passage, it's really the lesson here, and the parable unpacks it for us. 
The parable teaches what Jesus means. So, chapter 20, verse 1, let's unpack the parable. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now, back in ancient times, the workday for a, a day laborer like this, a workday spanned from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Okay, it was a 12-hour workday. So this employer sets out earlier in the day, earlier than 6, to get some laborers for his vineyard. It's probably harvest time. He needs some extra help. This is a very standard practice. So he goes out and he agrees. He finds some guys sitting around. He says, okay, I'll pay you for a day's labor. I'll pay you a denarius, which was a, a fair day's wage back then. Then we're told... Then we're told he went out at 9 a.m. and 12 p.m. and 3 p.m. and even at 5 p.m., the 11th hour, only one hour before quitting time. And each time he agrees to pay the new group that he hires, he'll pay them whatever is right. Which they would have understood to mean, you know, a fraction of a day's wage. The fraction of the day that they worked would be the fraction they get. So they work three quarters of a day, they're going to get three quarters of a denarius. A fair, a right price, a fair wage. But then, quitting time comes. 6 p.m. The horn blows. It's over. Day's over. Turn in your tools. Come get paid. And so the master sends his foreman out. They begin to pay the laborers. Beginning with the last first. And these are the guys who had only worked one hour. But he goes ahead and pays them. A whole denarius. A full day's wage. And then he pays the rest of the groups, each, a full day's wage. And not surprisingly, when it gets to the first group, who's been working for 12 hours since the beginning of the day, before the sun was up, the guys who have been there 12 times as long as the first guys, the bozos that got there at 5 p.m., they only get paid a denarius, and they are infuriated about it. Looking in with me, verses 10 to 12. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. In other words, they were saying, It's not fair. We worked the hardest. We worked the longest. We did the most for you. It's not fair that they get paid as much as us when they didn't do nearly as much as us. And in reply, the master of the house asked them three questions. Three questions That as we consider them, we see, tell us a lot about God, a lot about his kingdom, and reveal a lot about us. Three questions, which conveniently, just it's amazing how this works out, works out to three points for our sermon today. Isn't that just so often, so many passages work like that. So point number one, the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God. Look with me again at verses 13 and 14. But he replied to one of them, Friend, am I doing you no wrong? Or I am doing you no wrong. And then here's the first question. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? 
Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Now, we understand the problem that these first workers had. Right? We can see their point of view. They did bear the burden of the day and the scorching heat. So we can understand why when the men who got there at 5 p.m. were paid a whole denarius, the men who had gotten there at 6 a.m. must have been elbowing each other, saying, man, those guys just got here. They've barely done any work. They don't even have, they didn't break a sweat. And they get a whole denarius. How much are we going to get? Come on, guys, this is going to be a big payday. Mama's going to be happy when I get home tonight. These guys were excited to get more. But then the landowner pays them the same amount, one denarius. And if you were them, if I were them, we would have felt the same way they felt. It's not fair. And friends, by the way, this is something that Jesus does as master teacher that he is. So often in his parables, he works to get us feeling for the wrong people in the parable. He wants us to sympathize. It's like he does this with the the parable of the prodigal son, right? Because like by the end of it, you hear the older brother's complaints and you're kind of like, I feel like he has a point. And here I read the story and I'm like, I kind of understand the guy's, like, their gripe here, right? We're all sitting here thinking, I think they got a point. I mean, imagine if you and I worked together, doing the same job, only you came in at 8 a.m. and plugged away at your computer all day, while I came in at 4 p.m., got my coffee, did a little small talk, sat down, you know, plugged away for an hour, called it a day. And then you found out we made the same amount of money. Wouldn't you be going to your boss saying, hey man, this isn't fair. Well, Jesus knows this is exactly how we'd feel, but he's not teaching us how to run a business. He's teaching us what his kingdom is like. And so that sense of injustice that we feel, that sense of unfairness is exactly what Jesus wants us to feel because he wants to surprise us. He wants to catch us off guard to teach us, hey, this is how you think the world works, but this is not how my kingdom works. We want blessings in God's kingdom to be fair as we understand fairness. And so some of us go around looking at the blessings in other people's lives, the good that God is doing for them, and we think, that's not fair. I, I, know, that, I know the sins that they're struggling with. Why is God blessing them? I've been doing this for this long, and they're like, they're relatively new. Why are they getting so much from God? Why is he doing them good and not me? But the issue here, and this is the point, the issue isn't if God is giving someone else more than they deserve. The issue is, has God been faithful to give what he's promised? That is the issue. Has God been faithful to give what he's promised? The master of the house promised the laborers hired at 6 a.m. a denarius. 
which they agreed to, and the master was faithful to give him what he had promised. The point is, God is not unfair so long as he's faithful to give us what he promises. God is not unfair so long as he's faithful to give us what he promises. What do you think God has promised you? What do you think God has promised you? And what has he actually promised you? What God has promised you, he's promised to give you wisdom. It's a great promise, right? James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. God will give you wisdom. He's promised it. But that also means that God's going to lead you into all kinds of circumstances where you lack wisdom and need to ask for it so he can give it. God has promised to forgive us sins when we confess them, 1 John 1, 9. He's promised to draw near to us when we draw near to him, John, James 4, 8. He's promised to work the hardest things in our life together for our good, Romans eight twenty eight. And hasn't he been true to his promises? But it's our expectations that often hang us up. I know that in this room, there are, there are many who have dealt with real-life disappointments. Real-life discouragements. And I'm not trying to make light of them. But I'm trying to help us to understand that there's a difference between what we expect from God and what He has promised us. There's a difference between what we expect from him and what he has promised to each of us. And all the same, for all the disappointments, can't you still can't you still see blessings in your life too? In the midst of those disappointments, can't you see God's blessings? As well, aren't there parts of your lives where you could say, you know what, five years ago, I mean, even a year ago, I couldn't imagine the joy or the opportunity or the blessing I have right now. Recently, I heard the testimony of a man in his 60s whose wife had just recently passed away. And they had one child, he was a teenager, and the man was. Now, obviously going through grieving for losing his spouse, just like any of us would. But the testimony he was bubbling over with in that time, you know, like in the midst of his grieving, he just, he just couldn't stop talking about, but God has been so good to me. God has blessed me so richly. I thought I'd never get married, and then at the right time, the Lord brought me the perfect wife. And then for years, we thought she couldn't have a, she couldn't have a baby. And then miraculously, in her late 40s, she conceived a healthy child. And now that son, he's walking with the Lord. I'm so richly blessed. This is a man who is not holding on to the things that he has lost. Or to things that God had not promised him. But was a man who was richly aware that God has been faithful to give the things he has promised. 
And he was grateful. God is not unfair so long as he is faithful to give what he promises. Point number two, the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. If you look with me at verse 15, we find the second question here. Am I not allowed, the, the landowner says, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? The workers in this situation were complaining about their rights, in essence. They were saying, we worked all day. They worked one hour. We didn't get paid any more than them. We have a right to our fair share. But the master of the house, he saw this this business about rights differently. He essentially was saying to them, you have a right to what we agreed on. I promised a denarius for a day's work, and that's what I gave you. But if you want to talk about rights, then don't I have a right to do what I want with what belongs to me? This is what he says in verse 15. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Now, most of us in the West, we are Western world, we're, we're hardwired to think you know, early, often, and always about our rights, our unalienable rights. And there's a certain good behind that. We should be thankful for the different rights that we have been given and enjoyed. But when we come before God, and we say, God, I want to talk about rights. Be careful. As God will say, okay, let's talk about rights. Let's talk about my rights to do what I want with what belongs to me. And let me remind you, it all belongs to me. God is the sovereign one. He's the master of the house. He's the landowner. Romans 11.35 teaches, He is no man's debtor. God is under no obligation to bless any of us. God is under no obligation to forgive any of us. He has the right to dispense His grace As he pleases. God's blessings are his to give. As he sees fit. He is well within his rights. To do what he wants. With his inexhaustible riches. It's all his money to give. It's all his gifts. It's all his talents. It's all his opportunities. And he can distribute them as he wills. 1 Corinthians 12.11 So that if that brother over there. Gets anything. It's sovereign grace. And if you over here get anything, it's sovereign grace. Whether you arrive at 6 a.m. or 5 p.m., it is the kindness of the landowner to bring you in at all. It's the kindness of the landowner to give you work at all and to pay you a denarius. The kingdom of heaven operates on the sovereign grace of God. Let us take to heart that famous warning from Deuteronomy chapter 8. Where God says through Moses, take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. 
Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them. And when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives power to get wealth, that He may confirm His covenant, that He swore to your fathers as it is this day. Brothers and sisters, it is so subtle for us to begin to think that the blessings we have are the blessings we have earned. That the good that we have It's a subtle seduction to start thinking that if I do good for God, if I give up things for God, if I work for God, if I go out into his vineyard at 6 a.m. and bear the burden of the day and the scorching heat for God, then my God owes me. God, I've been following you for a long time now. I'm always at church. I'm up every morning reading my Bible. And so, Lord, I think this trial has gone on quite long enough. Lord, I worked hard to train my kids in the way that they should go. I worked hard and I endured much and now you owe me their salvation. God, I've done my fair share. Now it's your turn to do yours. Friends, we must remember God's grace is God's grace and he has the right to distribute it as he pleases. And this is a hard truth. This is a hard truth for the self-righteous. But for the poor in spirit, this is good news. This is a hard truth for the self-righteous because the self-righteous bucks against this. But haven't I done these things? I've been out there laboring. I've been working. I have done these things. Haven't I done the right things, God? Haven't I done what I'm supposed to be doing? The self-righteous finds this to be a hard truth that God is sovereign, distributing as he wills. But the poor in spirit, who knows they've got nothing they bring to the table, that they have nothing they contribute, that they can't bank on anything in their performance. They know their sin, and their only hope is that the grace of God is sovereignly dispersed, not based on their merit or performance. It's the poor in spirit that says, this is good news. God's grace is sovereignly given. Friends, it was said of David, everything that the king did pleased all the people. Well, may this be true of David's son and his people. Jesus reigns over his kingdom by divine right. And may all that he chooses to do please his people. This brings us to the third and final point this morning. The grace of God. The grace of God. 
the real heart of this issue in this parable wasn't really the denarius, and it wasn't really the hard labor that these men worked under a hot sun. The real heart of the issue here was the hard heart of these men. They were upset because the master was more generous to others than he was to them. If you look with me at the second half of verse 15, here's the the third question. Or do you begrudge my generosity? More literally, it says, Is your eye evil because I'm good? Is your eye evil because I'm good? It's an interesting phrase, that evil eye. It's used again in Mark 7, verse 22. Mark 7, 22. And there it's translated envy, like jealousy, envy. It means you look at and resent what someone else has. An evil eye. An envious eye. And this is the heart of this issue in this passage. It wasn't that these guys didn't get a fair wage. They received all that the landowner had promised them. The problem was they couldn't stand these other guys getting the same thing they got without working as hard as them. instead Instead of saying to themselves... Instead of saying like, man, isn't this awesome? This master? He hired these guys at the end of the day. But instead of paying them according to their effort, he paid them according to their need. They're, they're day laborers just like us. They've got the same needs. They got to put food on the table. Just like we worked all day. He's going to pay us for that. They worked for an hour. But man, he didn't pay them for their effort. He paid them for their need. What a great guy. What a generous man. What amazing grace and generosity. Instead of that, these men grumbled and envied the other servants. They envied the servants and grumbled against the master of the house. So here's the point for us. Are you the type of person who enjoys God's generosity to others? Or do you envy it? Do you celebrate the grace of God in other people's lives? Or do you look at them and think, why do they get that? Why do they get such a great job? Why does he get that raise? Why does she have children like that? Mine just run around me like they're tethered to a pole and hers just stand there all polite and patient and when they want to say something, they put her hand on them. It's just, why, do they, why does she get that? Why do they get good health? And I'm always struggling. Why do they get good looks? Why does their marriage seem so sweet? Why does she get that perfect little, little homestead with a big garden and chickens out back? And I got this crummy place not fair, Lord. Haven't I served you? Haven't I sacrificed? Haven't I done what's right? All of that is looking through life with, with lenses of fairness instead of glasses of grace. Friends, the, here's the whole point. None of it is fair. 
None of it is fair. It's all grace. For sinners like you and me, we are never doing as bad as we deserve to be doing. We're never receiving as bad as we deserve to receive. When what we deserve is hell. But by the grace of God, we have been forgiven of our sins and we now live free from fear of future wrath because of the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for our sins. Listen, when hell is our reference point and not other people or their lives or their blessings, but when hell is our reference point, we are most definitely always doing Better than we deserve. And really, all it takes to shine as the light of Christ in this world is to pepper your day with humble expressions of gratefulness for the grace of God in your life. Those who are truly amazed at the grace they have received instead of the judgment they deserve in light of their sin and the holiness of God, those who have been truly humbled by the gospel of grace that has been poured out on them are characterized by lives of gratefulness for grace, not grumbling and evil envious eyes. If you really get God's grace, there are going to be two symptoms present in your life. If you really get the grace of God... Two symptoms are going to be present in your life. The first is gratitude for God's goodness. And the second is celebrating with whoever receives it. The first is just gratitude. I can't believe God is gracious and good. And the second is I can't believe he's good and gracious to anybody. This is amazing. It's amazing grace in your life. It's amazing grace in my life. God's grace is amazing to us. If we get the grace of God, we will be grateful for goodness and we will celebrate with the recipients, whoever they are. And so in conclusion, I think the key takeaway from this parable is that grace excludes any sense of entitlement. Grace excludes any sense of entitlement in our life. Because grace isn't fair. Grace isn't fair. It's undeserved blessing. There are blessings for following Jesus, but we must never think that we are entitled to them, that we deserve them, or that we've somehow earned them. They only come by grace. This is what it means when Jesus, or this is what Jesus means when he concludes the passage saying, so the last will be first and the first last. He means the grace of his kingdom is going to upend all our expectations. Sovereign grace surprises us. Grace means no matter how much we've done for Jesus, we are just as accepted by him as the thief on the cross who did nothing for Jesus. Grace means the kingdom is given to those who cannot earn it and do not deserve it. 
It's a kingdom whose king, at at great cost to himself, has gathered to himself undeserving, hard-hearted people and makes them his children and then gives them his spirit so that they look like his children. In fact, there may be some here today. There may be some of you here today who think, you know what? God could never receive me as his child. Because you don't know what I have done. You don't know the bad that I have done. You don't know how many times I have failed. I don't deserve it. And on that, I agree. You don't deserve it. None of us deserve it. That's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not about us earning it. It's about how generous God is. It's about how generous and gracious he is. And you can come to him and labor in his vineyard today and he will generously pay you a denarius. It doesn't matter if you get saved today If you get saved today, you are just as accepted by him, just as loved by him, just as much a child as him as the person who is sitting in the pew and been a Christian for 40 years. It's all grace. It makes no difference to God. 6 a.m., 5 p.m., his grace is all that matters. He's a generous king. And for all of you here who are following Jesus, The application of this text to us is to put on our glasses of grace every day. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, The secret of a happy Christian life is to realize that it is all of grace and to rejoice in that fact. The secret to a happy Christian life is to realize it's all of grace. And to rejoice in that fact. Brothers and sisters, we have no right to God's goodness. We cannot demand anything of him. And if we go through life thinking that we do deserve his goodness, that we have a right to it, we'll end up grumbling and begrudging God, his goodness to others. But if our reference point is always our great need that was met for us in Jesus Christ, That in our sin, we were running to hell and Jesus stopped us in that run and died in our place to save us from that. If our reference point is always that need, then God's grace shows us that every day we are doing better than we deserve. And we can rejoice in that fact. Let's pray. God in heaven, Lord, you are so good to us, Lord, that you you both encourage us that if we pay the price to follow you, if we give it up, you'll reward us a hundredfold and we will inherit eternal life. Lord, we need that encouragement because we do give significant things up for your sake. And already we begin to taste something of the, the hundredfold of the goodness that breaks into this life, Lord, as you, you do bless us. But how kind of you to also care for us and to, to steer us away from that sense of entitlement, that expectation that you owe us. God, would you guard our hearts from ever presuming upon you? And may we just marvel 
May we just marvel at the mercy and the grace of God that is poured out on us. God, in light of our sin, in light of the sacrifice you've made for us in Jesus Christ, how are we not doing better than we deserve? God, help us to rejoice in that fact and to go in the grace of God. We pray this in Jesus Christ. Amen. I ask you to stand now as we come to God's table of grace for us.